Well, thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm Corey McClagan. I'm the news editor of the Texas Tribune. And on behalf of the Tribune, I just wanted to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to getting out ahead of your health with Dr. Kenneth Cooper and Dr. Clay Johnston. This panel is supported by Texas A&M Healthy Texas and the Texas A&M University System. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. We have two fantastic panelists today. On my far left is Dr. Clay Johnston. He's the inaugural dean of the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin, which just this year welcomed its first students. He's a neurologist who specializes in stroke care and research. And before he came to Austin, he was associate vice chancellor for research at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Johnston's vision is to create a world-class medical school that supports innovations in education and healthcare delivery. And he's focused on making Austin a model healthy city. And Dr. Kenneth Cooper, right here to my immediate left, coined the term aerobics in the 1960s. He's the founder of the Cooper Institute in Dallas, which is dedicated to promoting lifelong health and wellness worldwide through research, education, and advocacy. Dr. Cooper is passionate about fighting childhood obesity and advocating for quality physical education. He says he's logged more than 38,000 miles running. And a fun fact, Dr. Cooper used aerobics to train the 1970 Brazilian soccer team, which won the World Cup. So thank you both very much for coming. This panel will last one hour, and there'll be an opportunity for audience members to ask questions at the end. There'll be microphones in the audience. Um, please silence your phones. For those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TTF. So we're going to talk about wellness today. Most discussions about healthcare begin at the end. The system is gridlocked. The system is expensive. Both of these doctors focus a lot on the beginning, how to avoid getting sick, how to save money and effort by making smart choices, wellness instead of sickness. And I want to start by talking about sugar. Uh, just this month, a new paper in a medical journal said that decades ago, the sugar industry paid scientists to play down the link between sugar and heart disease and basically blame saturated fat instead. This paper was based on historical documents discovered by a researcher at your former university, UCFF, UCSF, <laughs> Dr. Dunstan. Um, and I wanted to ask you, have we been completely misunderstanding sugar for years? Um, well, I think completely misunderstanding. Well, I think we've underestimated the impact of sugar on, on health in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and there's more and more data that suggests that um, the increased consumption of sugar over time is strongly correlated with obesity, including in children, mm -hmm. and also with other direct negative effects. You know, we're seeing liver failure on the basis of, of really sugar ingestion in a way that we never saw it before, in, including in children. Mm -hmm. um, and many people now, many epidemiologists, public health people, think that that sugar is more than any, anything else responsible for the obesity ep epidemic, whether it's in the form of high fructose corn syrup or in the form of sucrose or um, either, either way that it uh, creates a kind of addiction and, a, um, and uh, that where it encourages even more consumption um, beyond what's needed for, for calories to, to sustain us. Mm -hmm. And should should government be doing something about this? You know, the, yeah, it's well, a great question. So the, the, um, it's a really interesting. When I was in San Francisco, we had a program where we were working on sugar. Actually, it was, it was funded by the Arnold Foundation. Um, and um, uh, I was, un, it was under the umbrella that I administered. Um, and it, it got started after the city of Richmond. Richmond's a, a, a poor, um, poorer city in the San Francisco Bay Area in the north, um, the city of Richmond decided it was going to have a tax on soda or sugar-sweetened beverages, and um, a pretty heavy tax, and um, put that on its ballot um, as a ballot measure. 
and then the, the, it was an amazing um, series of events. That's a city that, that has um, a, a large African-American population, a lot of obesity, including in children. And so they were really interested in how they could push through this. The um, number of millions of dollars that the sugar industry put into a campaign um, in hiring locals too to talk about you know taxing and how this was regressive and all of that it ultimately did not pass in that in that area um, then another year later actually it was two years later San Francisco and Berkeley had similar measures on their ballots um, it passed in Berkeley so there is a soda tax in Berkeley it's one of the few um, uh, cities well now Philadelphia has initiated something as well um, and it did not pass in San Francisco and again, the, the, if you compare the dollars that were thrown into those campaigns, it, it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. In San Francisco, they said, gosh, this is already such an expensive city. Do you really want to make it more expensive? Not recognizing that actually you know, it, it's even more expensive because we have to deal with the consequences of obesity and the consequences of diabetes and joint problems and all of that, which are much more expensive. Um, and one could direct that tax towards the right thing. Very similar to what's gone on with tobacco for for uh, decades. Mm -hmm. So I think a remarkable um, uh, series of events, you know, obviously Mexico is different. Mexico has a soda tax that's dramatically reduced the consumption of, uh, of, um, of sugar in, in Mexico. Too early to say how it'll impact obesity, but um, you know, some, even at the country level, they've been able to do it. I, I don't see that happening in the current administration here in Texas, um, but, uh, and I think whenever it, might happen, it will be a, a real fight. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cooper, what do you think? What, what should the, the government's role be in, in what people eat or drink? It's not so much the government's what we do for ourselves. It's mm -hmm. important. I would comment on a couple of things. One is I have no question in my mind about the role of sugar disease, particularly diabetes. We do know, too, that what is staring us in the face now is this diabetes epidemic that goes along with obesity. It's estimated every child born in this country after the year 2000, one out of three will come down with diabetes sometime in their life. Whereas we have some 28 million diabetics in America today, we could have 100 million diabetics in the year 2050. We don't change this. Also, I am working in China now, and I've found that the Chinese are very interested in trying to do something to improve the health of their children. But we'll be opening up our first center in China. We're going over there the 17th of April called the Cooper Aerobics Wellness Health and Wellness Center in Nanjing, China. Hmm. Also, I was just reminded just this last week, there's an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they talked about that uh, prior to 2010, the leading cause of kidney failure requiring dialysis was glomerulonephritis. That's a chronic kidney problem. But since 2010, the leading cause of kidney failure requiring dialysis is diabetes. And there's been an epidemic of obesity in China, particularly their children, just like we've had in the United States. I was with the uh, Vice Minister of Health in Beijing back in December 2012. And I said, sir, I've been coming to China since 1988, been there nine times so far. In Beijing, they had, in those days, dirt streets, military dump trucks, many people riding bicycles. It was the dilapidated third world city. You go to Beijing now, they have 100-story buildings, they have superhighways, they have Mercedes, they have Audis, people riding motorcycles everywhere, 50% of the people are smoking, and they have a fast food restaurant every corner. Mm. So I said, sir, I can know that I was preparing for a meeting I had with the president of China back in 2013, with President Xi, who's very, very interested in this. And I said, uh, in our country, in 1990, we had 13% of our children overweight obese, and 33% of our adults overweight obese. We now have 67% of our adults over obese and 33% of our children. I said, sir, I see a perfect storm. If you'd have the same problem we have within 22 years, if you don't change your lifestyle, your country, his response was, can you help us? Mm. Tragic. I've tried uh, in my 85 years, I've tried several times to try to get, get this through Washington, uh, to try to get an emphasis on uh, trying to combat childhood obesity, adult obesity, cost of health care, all these various things. Mm -hmm. And I was told when I was meeting with, back in, uh, in 2008, I was meeting with Secretary Levitt, and I said, I want to concentrate on childhood obesity, diabetes, 
adult obesity, diabetes, the cost of health care. I got five things that can improve the healthy American people, I'm convinced. And his response was, fine, Dr. Cooper, we want you to concentrate on AIDS, avian, flu, and bioterrorism. As Surgeon General of the United States, I was offered. I said, no way. That's not what's killing us. He said, I know, but you're wasting your time in Washington because there's nine bills submitted by members of Congress since January 2005, one by Ted Kennedy, two by Bill Frist, one by John Cornyn, eight bombed out in subcommittee, one died in the House. You're wasting your time in Washington, and that's true at the present mm -hmm. time. So he did say, come back to Texas and start in at the bottom. And so I came back and we started the fitness gram testing program here in Texas mm -hmm. back in 2007. Mm -hmm. We're making a difference in Texas. Across the country, the kids are still getting fatter and fatter. We've stabilized obesity in children of third to twelfth grade since we started testing in 2008 up through 2015, but we're seeing a dramatic improvement in aerobic capacity mm -hmm. by the fitness gram testing and training program. So we're making an effort here in Texas with our children to lead the country, if not lead the state. And speaking of children, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Cooper, because you've done some work on recess in schools, and, and just recently Dallas ISD was... Um, considering, I think, mandating daily recess for elementary schools, that proposal did pass, and you, you, your institute um, advocated for that. Is there, are, are Texas children getting enough recess in school? No, in fact, the problem has been, we've been testing since, uh, since 2008 up to almost 3 million kids, third to 12th grade. But we've implemented the testing. It was deplorable what we first found, mm -hmm. a very simple test. The fitness gram test, on top, rank the type 80 percentile. The first test that we made in, 19, in 2008, 2.6 million kids, only 33% of the third graders could pass the simple test and went down a straight line, less than 10% could pass the test as seniors. That's the deplorable situation that we've had. So with that type of data, data drives decision. We're now impressing upon the people of Texas, the people in this country, we've got to do something. And they've been trying to fight this every year with the legislature. They try to eliminate fitness gram testing. That's the only tool we have that has any potential impact as far as improving the health of this country, of this state, because these kids are going to grow up. And these fat kids can become fat adults. That's all there is to it. No question about that. But the big thing, you're talking about recess. Mm -hmm. Now, there was only one state up until 2008 that had mandatory recess, and that was the state of Illinois. Mm. And had mandatory PE. They eliminated it with no child left behind. They thought the best way to improve the grades is to eliminate recess and PE and replace the math and science and reading. It's all backwards. Because our study clearly showed, we published this in 2009, that kids who are in good shape make better grades in school. The brain functions differently. We know that immediately after vigorous exercise, areas of the brain most perfused, the blood not responsible for creativity and memory. That's well known. Even adults, we show even older adults can actually increase the size of their brain from 65, from 60 to 79 years of age by just getting involved in an exercise program. It's just amazing things we're seeing now. We were ignoring that. But the three things we published in our studies in Texas, number one, the kids made much better grades if they're physically fit. Number two, they had less absenteeism. And number three, they had less... Got, they had less drug and gang problems. And the legislature a few years ago right, uh, rolled back the amount of PE you have to have to graduate from high school in Texas. Um, so do we have a PE problem here? Well, we still have now, from three to the, to the ninth grade, we have a mandatory requirement. But it's very lenient, it's 10, 11, and 12. Mm -hmm. So it's, we still don't have much of that. And this is a deplorable situation because you know that 70% of the high school seniors graduating from our high schools can't even qualify for the military because of academics and because of obesity, of my third of those, of obesity. That's how bad our young children are graduating from high school. There is a security problem in the future mm -hmm. because they have to take these kids in and try to train them, condition them, and get them in shape in a period of a few weeks. I mean, it's a deplorable thing that we're ignoring. That's what I'm trying my best to change. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to switch topics just a little bit. Um, Dr. Johnston, when you talk about making Austin a model healthy city. Um, you're not just talking about things like diet and exercise. You also talk sometimes about transportation. And I wanted to ask you, what does transportation have to do with wellness? Yeah, so um, there have been a number of studies that have looked at, at, uh, at transportation and, and, um, and healthiness. Um, it ends up that, um, that taking public transportation is good for your health. Um, sitting in a car and, and uh, traffic it has a lot of negative impacts on your health. I mean, the, the most obvious one is you're, you're not out walking, you're, you're on your butt. Um, you know, and there may be effects of stress and all that as well, but um, public transportation forces you to walk. 
um, that forces you to walk to the, the bus, the train, whatever it is that you're taking, mm -hmm. and then to walk at the other end of it. Um, and so the cities that actually have more public transportation tend to be um, healthier cities. Mm -hmm. And your medical school has a, a special link to the Austin community. Um, in, in part because uh, Travis County voters decided to have some of their property taxes go to supporting the medical school, which is a, a pretty unusual arrangement. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing to shake up traditional med school curriculum to really connect your med school with the community? Yeah, so um, you know, this, we're in a great position. It's wonderful to be connected to the community that way. I mean, that, that really hasn't happened before, that a community would say, hey, we want a med school, and vote and increase your property tax to bring a med school to existence. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't met anyone who wants health care. Everybody wants to not have health care. <laughs> and, and so if, if you think about that, Currently, most med schools make, or have gigantic healthcare enterprises. They make money on healthcare, and so they're driven by making money on the healthcare side. Mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to do is change the equation. We can save a lot of money in the healthcare system by keeping people healthier by the things that Dr. Cooper's talking about, but by um, other things as well, um, you know, policy, but also just programs that use technologies that create incentives. And all of that can then help us to drive down the healthcare costs. We actually need to be able to demonstrate how um, interventions like that upstream save money downstream, because we need to redirect those dollars that we spend on healthcare back to the front. Um, and that also requires a different view of the business of, of healthcare. Um, in new business models to support that, which is you know complex and interesting. So within that, though, the role of the physician is different as well. So then the, the physician, if the, if the job is really to keep people healthy, not to just take care of them when they get sick, and if the role is to do that in a new system where you're paid for people being well, which is exactly the way we the whole system should be paid, it should be paid based on the outcomes that we want to achieve, not just on more churning of things done to us, mm -hmm. um, then the physician curriculum, that needs to look quite different. Mm -hmm. And so our curriculum is very different. We, um, there's a lot of uh, community en engagement um, in it. Uh, we uh, um, shorten some of the basic science curriculum in order to give us an extra year where they actually work in the community mm -hmm. and population health-based projects. There's a lot of entrepreneurism, a lot of population health training as well. So it's a very different kind of curriculum. The students themselves will be giving back to the, to the community even before they graduate. So, uh, you know, it's a, the advantage of being able to say, hey, how, would, how do we as a society want our medical schools to exist? How do, how do we want healthcare to be designed? So you're saying, no, go ahead. Make a comment about uh, preventing medicine. Mm -hmm. My 60th year of practicing medicine, happy to say that. 80% of my medical school classes already died. Mm. I've been practicing what I've been preaching all these years, reason I'm here with you today, still working full time and enjoying it. Mm. In medical school, we were taught that preventive medicine is a Cinderella medical specialties because there's no profit in health, mm -hmm. profits in disease. I fought that uh, 46 years ago in establishing my center in Dallas, two office and two employees. Trying to take care of healthy people, it's a whole lot cheaper and more effective to maintain good health, regaining once it's lost, was mm -hmm. my premise. We started that on a wing and a prayer. Now we have 600 employees of a 30-acre facility. We're doing international research all over the world. Because we've proven it's cheaper and more effective to maintain good health, beginning once it's lost. But this article just recently published, Cardiorespiratory Fitness in Middle Age and Healthcare Costs Later in Life. What we show, we had, it's called the Medicare study. We have 120,000 patients in our database now. We followed some for as long as 45 years. And we found taking patients who had 50, 51 years of age, very important for all the people here, 50, 51 years of age, if they're in the top category of fitness versus bottom category of fitness and follow them for 25 years, from 65 to 75 years of age, those in good shape, not that difficult, good shape at age 50, the cost of Medicare 25 years later was 40% less than those in the bottom category. That's facts. Another thing we just published recently from this famous study, 28,000 people followed for a period of up to 25 years, the association with mid-life cardiovascular fitness levels and later life dementia. 
Dementia is on a fantastic rise. Alzheimer's, dementia. And we found those people in good shape at age 50, at age 75, 36% less dementia and Alzheimer's than those in poor shape at age 50. It's your life. But the, thing, the one thing we've been trying to quantify over the years when I was in medical school taught that exercise is dangerous. Now we've proven with our research and other research that exercise is medicine. It's a critical part of preventive medicine and rehabilitative medicine. Mm-hmm. We know that. Don't you had lectures on cancer this morning. And some studies have clearly shown that people with prostate cancer, with breast cancer, colon cancer, if they get involved, well, first of all, if they exercise, they're less likely to get cancer. Mm-hmm. We know now that five things are clearly related to cancer in our research and others, too. Obesity, inactivity, use of tobacco in any form, excess alcohol, and vitamin D deficiency. We're studying that now. We're doing vitamin D studies in all of our patients. Those clearly relate to cancer. And MD Anderson says 70% of the cancers can be prevented mm-hmm. in the first place. But once, if you can prevent them, then you, if you can't prevent them, diagnose it early. And even we're showing with exercise in these three studies from the Cleveland Clinic and other places that people with metastatic cancer get them involved in exercise program, they live longer. Mm-hmm. So we've got a, exercise not a panacea. It's the foundation of any good preventive rehabilitative program. So I think that's extremely important that we put prevention back in the proper. And I can tell you we've been very successful in Dallas because we get results for our patients. But physicians need to be more qualified. There was an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal about a year ago, and the headlines it says, the doctor with the stethoscope on, jog and call me in the morning, instead of taking aspirin and call me in the morning. <laughs> and say, physicians need to make an examination of levels of fitness a critical part of their examination. Mm-hmm. But physicians aren't qualified. Now, he's doing this at his school. I'm, I'm congratulating him for this. T- physicians need to know about exercise physiology. I didn't get a thing about exercise physiology in medical school. I didn't get a thing about nutrition in medical school. Mm-hmm. That's a key point of preventive medicine. Mm-hmm. What I got about exercise physiology and I got a, a, a nutrition, I got that at Harvard School of Public Health mm-hmm. when I was working there. So we got to change our approach. Too much care, too late. That's why our cost of health care is twice as much as anybody in the world, and we rank 25th in longevity. Too much of our health care is put on desperate measures prolonging death, not life, a miserable few days. We're changing. I'm glad to see that we're getting reception now. We're in, uh, we've been contacted with people in Dubai. They want to have a medical portal in Dubai. They want to have 500,000 people going to Dubai by the year 2020 to go for special procedures. Cleveland Clinic has already built a hospital in Abu Dhabi, so they can start that type of services in the Middle East, and they want us to be there for a wellness. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned... Um obesity some, and I know that's an issue that can affect African Americans and Hispanics um, disproportionately. And I was wondering, this can be a question for either one of you, but what should we be doing in Texas, especially to address that disproportionality? Yeah, so the, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a really difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have to. If, um, if you look at a, at a uh, city like Austin, um, Austin, in many ways, is uh, one of the healthiest cities in the country. You know, mm-hmm. some of the lowest smoking rates, uh, um, some of the uh, burden of chronic disease is substantially lower. Our um, heart disease risk is substantially lower than most of the country. But if you look at disparities, the disparities in in Austin are substantial. In they um, they're rich versus poor, and we're wealthier, and so that's partly why, on average, we're healthier. Um, but also. Um, Hispanic, African American versus white. The Hispanics are you know, interesting in some areas. They do do better than than whites. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting. Not really understood exactly why. And in some areas they don't do as well. And diabetes and obesity, those are major issues. You know, it's interesting. Right before this, we were talking about how the first woman who ran the Boston Marathon was in 1967, mm-hmm. and that before that, women didn't run distance. And you know, if if I think about that you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that runs around the lake down here. If you're in Austin, you know what I'm talking about. And um, and actually, if you look at diversity of people running around the lake, mm-hmm. um, there is you know there are plenty of women. I think more than half probably are women that are running around. But but it does not represent the um, racial ethnic diversity of our city. Mm-hmm. So somehow there's some cultural changes. That, that we need to, to spur on to think think about. Um, San Francisco did an experiment. They they put um, some soccer fields in a very tough um, uh, Hispanic uh, neighborhood in San Francisco, and it dramatically changed the neighborhood and increased the health and reduced diabetes rates in that neighborhood. So, are there things like that that we can do that match the the interests and culture? I think um, we've you know we have to be open to the solutions coming from the 
from the, uh, the populations that are, that are most effective, and we have to um, invest a lot in health disparities if we really want to elevate the health of our communities. Mm -hmm. What are you coming about, Austin? I congratulate you because you're barely ranking the top 10 to 20 as most healthiest cities in the United States. So you've got a running head start here. <laughs> no, it's a... Well, Kathy Swiker was in yesterday. She's a woman who ran the Boston Marathon back in 1967. She did this in disguise. And Jock Simple tried to get out and tear a bear off of her chest so she couldn't complete the race because no one had ever been allowed to run the marathon. 1967 took the Boston Marathon. But her big buddy was with her, six foot two and about 200 pounds, and he beat the guy off so she could keep running. And she finished the Boston Marathon, the first woman ever to do that. She told us yesterday in a presentation in Dallas that she said there are over 20 million people running in America today and 58% are women. <laughs> Last year, 450,000 people, 540,000 people finished a marathon and 52% were women. My wife and I wrote aerobics for women back in, 19, uh, in 1972, and my wife was asking national television, is it ladylike for a woman to sweat? <laughs> and now I'm so pleased to see this is ubiquitous around the world. And she's been leading marathon runs in, in, in Japan, in Europe, in 27 countries now. And women have exploded. I'll tell you, it's an interesting group I had lunch with yesterday. It's called uh, Girls on the Run for third and eighth grade girls. It's a national program. Hmm. About 1,200 in, in Dallas participate in it, about 200,000 nationally, it's been about 20 years. And they take these girls, three to eight years, the third to the eighth grade, and try to get involved in a training program, an exercise program, to improve their self esteem and to break out of the mold and all. And it's been fantastic success. Yeah. I congratulate you women. Austin has a program done. too that's similar to that for where they train kids from disadvantaged neighborhoods to run the marathon. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of that program, but it's an amazing program with um, transformational changes in those kids. They are not in good shape necessarily when they start, and they all are at the end. And it creates a really strong sense of community as well. That's the kind of thing that, that somehow you know, just to imagine that in 1967 women were running, I mean, just, that's just so amazing what a cultural shift was required in order for that to happen. Mm -hmm. A lot of other things were happening as well, but I think we, somehow we need to spur on those sorts of changes as well. Let me tell you something, too. I ran my first Boston Marathon in 1962, and I placed 101st the Boston Marathon. It sounds fantastic. Only 150 people ran it back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cooper, you, you talk about these um, eight steps that people can, can follow. Um, can, you, can you share some of those with us? Yes, yeah, so, uh, we call being Cooperized. <laughs> our studies clearly show that if you follow these basic steps, we're following, we have now set 96,000 people in our 20 year study. We've followed it for 20 years. And we're predicting people that get Cooperized following these basic steps, they will live, the men will live, well, both men and women live 10 years longer. With the projected life expectancy of our men is 87.5 years now, and 96,000 patients, and 90.5 for women. That's roughly 10 years on the national average. Yes, there are very important things. And one of the key things of the eight is to avoid inactivity. And we know now as little as even 30 minutes of exercise, collective or sustained, most days per week, can increase your life expectancy by six years, reduce death from all causes by 58%, and no one can contest that statement. That's been repeated and repeated and repeated. We have 49 million Americans who are totally sedentary. They think they're healthy. Remember, two of the most common first symptoms of your heart disease is sudden death. 40% of people that have heart attacks they only have. Now, we concentrate on these basic things. We concentrate on body mass index. It should be less than 25. We can argue about that all day. Body mass index is not the perfect way to determine ideal weight. Mm -hmm. Because you're big and muscular and strong, you'll have a high weight, but you have low percent body fat. Mm -hmm. Example, Chad Hennings, Dallas Cowboys. Six foot six, weighs three over 300 pounds when he's playing with the Cowboys. His body mass index was 33. It should be less than 25. His percent body fat was 10 minus 14. So that doesn't work. All right, that's the first thing, body weight. While we say five is fine, nine is divine. Number of servings of fruits and vegetables should be consuming daily. Average American adult, 3.1. Average American teenager, only 1.2. 1.6. Next on the list, we are strongly emphatic on supplementation. We're doing research on this, uh, particularly omega-3 and vitamin D. And this is the original research. We're still years behind the role of, of, of vitamin supplementation and preventing medicine. We're getting some undeniable data to show that supplementation is important, but you've got to measure the level of vitamin D. You've got to measure the level of omega-3. And you start treating like you treat cholesterol with the statin drugs. All right, we know next on the list that you must, that must exercise at least 30 minutes most days a week. Going down the list, you can't use tobacco in any form. Uh, you can't drink alcohol. Women shouldn't drink more than six drinks a week because the nurse's study from Harvard showed if you drink more than six drinks a week, there's a 26% increased risk of cancer of the breast. Cancer is related to, uh, that alcohol is related to cancer. 
We know that, uh, that meditation is extremely important, management of stress, the importance of physical examination. People come to us on a daily basis, think they're perfectly healthy until the next day in the hospital because we pick up cancer or heart disease. I'm happy to say that we now have in our database of 120,000 patients, over 250,000 treadmill stress tests we've done now. We've never lost anyone from stress testing, I'm anxious to say. I go before the board of the centers, and I started my practice in Dallas back in 1970 because I was doing stress testing on a treadmill. You couldn't do that. Strange thing happened, though, that uh, I go before the board of censors. I wasn't censored. But back in 1971, a very prominent pastor, 57 years of age, came to my clinic on one of the two offices and two employees there in Preston Center. He wanted to be stressed. He heard me speak at a luncheon about the importance of being stressed. Men over 40, women over 50 should be stressed because the first most common symptom is that is heart disease. I could put him on my treadmill. I stopped within two minutes. And I said, sir, you have severe heart mass disease. He'd be hospitalized immediately. I can't believe that. I saw a physician the other day. He was way overweight. He said they need to lose weight, but he said, I didn't have any problem. Go and actually, that's what you want. At Cooper's note, I'll run him out of town. So I said, okay, if you're unhospitalized, within 12 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. He promptly shooting me out. We don't see my patient. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. Okay, sir. If this man isn't hospitalized within the next 12, 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of his case. Nothing was done. And 10, later, 10 days later, he died, sitting at his desk, 57 years of age. Very prominent pastor in Dallas, Texas, lost his wife. And the person who called me was that physician. That exploded stress session mm. in Dallas. And now it's ubiquitous. I say we get. Yet we pick up disease. 16% of the patients coming to our clinic, we have 120,000 patients, 16% have an abnormal equivocal stress test. And only five of the 16% had any idea that had a problem. Mm. So that's 11% of 120,000 patients that discover for the first time in their life that they have serious coronary disease. If I'm, let me tell you about what happened to George Bush. I can tell this now because this was... Uh, Please, do. Now, this was George W. Bush, been my patient now since 1988. I was Washington eight times in examination while he was nominated twice to become Surgeon General. But as I told you, I, I couldn't do that. did everything I had in Dallas. But he had continued to exercise. I was always proud of George because when he was running before, when he was governor, he was running two miles in less than 12 minutes. Great shape. Went on to Washington. He kept with this exercise. We always ask our executives, we ask them, uh, uh, what's the stress of your occupation? Low, moderate, high stress. George Bush always said moderate stress. The most stressed man in the world considered only moderate stress. How do you control that? He said, I do that with my fitness. And at, at age 59, on the treadmill stress test in Washington, he ranked the top two percentile on the treadmill stress, fantastic shape. He says, because I exercise an hour, six days a week, exercise from my head, not my heart. I control the stress in my life with my fitness and my faith. And I've said it all over, he allows me to say that. He retired, moved to Dallas, and back in, uh, it was the 5th of August, 2013, when he came through his regular exam. He didn't tell us that uh, two weeks later, two weeks earlier though, he had been wearing about 100 kilometer bicycle rides with his veterans. He was hot and humid, and he almost passed out when he got off the bicycle. He didn't tell us that. So we put him on the treadmill, and he was down 40% of his performance on the treadmill. And during recovery, he almost passed like he did two weeks earlier. And his EKG, his stress EKG, was completely abnormal for the first time in all these years. We made him do a CT angiogram. We don't have to go through the groin, put you in the hospital. We inject a contrast beneath the arm, put you to a CT scanner, and it's just as accurate as in the hospital. He had 99% obstruction of the LAD called the Widowmaker, the major blood vessel supply blood to the heart. We immediately got him to the hospital within 12 hours, angioplasty and stent. And he went by him Sunday afternoon, he said, Cooper, you saved my life, because he was scheduled two weeks later to have another 100 kilometer bicycle ride. Mm. I said, George, don't know how true you're speaking. Every day we have up to 1,000 people exercise at our center. And two days earlier, when George Bush was seen on Monday, we saw this man on Saturday, 9.30 a.m. This, this was the 3rd of August, 2013, running on the indoor track. Now, he was a corporate executive of Exxon, 63 years of age, who had just been seen by his regular physician two weeks earlier when he asked him a question, don't I need a stress test because I'm jogging at 63 years of age? Cooper said, I need a stress test. You don't need a stress test, so he said, because you have a normal EKG, rest EKG, you have no coronary risk, you have no symptoms. Stress testing for you would be worthless. Saturday morning, 9.30, two days before we called George, running the indoor track, collapsed and died. Now, we have 15 million miles been run our tracks in the, last 40, in the last 46 years. We've had five near-death. We lost one person. That's all. And, then all the, and we, so our staff is well-trained. We have a physician there all the time. We, our staff got to him, started CPR. The physician there was on call, put the paddles on his chest, shocked him one time, all done within four minutes. By the time the paramedics got there, no matter what he called, he wanted to go home. You can't go home. You have near-death experience. 
come out of the hospital, he had exactly the same lesion George Bush had. 99% mm. obstruction LAD. Saw him a few weeks ago, alive and well. George is in great shape. Don't die of something stupid. <laughs> Well, that's good advice, and some, thank you for the presidential history as well. Um, on a different topic, Dr. Johnston, um, our commissioner of agriculture here in Texas, Sid Miller, raised some eyebrows last year because he uh, lifted a statewide ban on deep fryers and soda machines in schools. And he said his point was to give control to the school districts and not the state. But do you think he was on the wrong track? Um, <laughs> I, might, I might say that the fryers in schools and soda machines in schools, I think, is on the wrong track. Yes. Um, I think um, there have been a number of studies to show that if, if um, and I mean, this has been a big campaign for me on this campus to try to get rid of our own soda machines. I mean, we got them all over at UT at the med Austin. At, at UT Austin. Mm -hmm. um, at the med school, there are no soda machines. They just the, the school, yeah, right? so we're good on that. There are no soda machines in the med school, um, but uh, um, it, it uh, you know, we it is interesting that we we tolerate this um, throughout society. That the only choice that you have is a is a twenty ounce uh, soda. I mean, now at least there's some water, sweetened water options in in those same machines, but they're. You're certainly encouraged to drink something that is not at all good for you. Um, children aren't positioned to make good decisions about what they should drink. I can I can attest to that in my own family. Uh, my 11-year-old, uh, uh, my 13-year-old boys, they you know they know what they like, um, and you know we set up incentive plans to uh, to assure that they are soda-free. Um, for the, for the year, um, but you know I think that that is um, uh, for me it just it it does not fit to to be as part of the educational settings that we create for our children um, to have um, exposure to um, in an acceptance that those those kinds of foods are okay. Mm -hmm. I understand the issue about choice, and I understand that there are a lot of uh, libertarian notions about. Um, what we should be allowed to do as individuals and gain access to, I, I can I can relate to those. But I guess when it comes to our children, I don't think my children have the judgment to apply them. And maybe yours do, and maybe Sid Miller's did. Um, but um, uh, you know, I I, I think it's a. Um, I think we have to watch these things very carefully and look at the impact uh, that they have. I still wonder what that Jesus shot is too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. you're, you're not giving those Jesus shots, are you? No, no, that's not me. You know, that's not number nine. You know no, that you one. You can uh, read all about Sid Miller and the Jesus shot in the Texas Tribune. Um, we, we're about to go to questions from the audience, and you guys can, if you have a question, you can go ahead and make your way to the microphones. But first, since we have with us the man who literally wrote the book on aerobics, I was wondering if Dr. Cooper could lead all of us who have just been sitting here in maybe a little bit of stretching or exercise of some kind. Now keep in mind, I'm 85 years of age. <laughs> well, I hope, though, is you all can be enjoying the same quality of life that I'm enjoying at 85. I work out five days a week. But let me keep telling you a very important point, too. If you're 80 years of age, if you can walk a mile, put this into your memory bank, 80 years of age, you can walk a mile in 17 minutes, there's an 84% chance you'll live another 10 years. Regardless of your past history, 86% chance if you're a woman. Keep that in your mind. I walk at a 15-minute mile pace. I had to stop jogging back in 2004 when I broke my leg after, after jogging all those years. But you don't, you don't quit. You just transition. So I transition to fast walking. Walking and your weight training becomes much more important as you get older. You have to, in the early years, have to worry about that weight training. But you get past 50 or 60, 60 years of age, you need to calisthenics and weight training. We're not going to do that now, but let's just kind of stretch for a minute. Okay, let's put your arms out the side now, Ken. And let's just do some arm rows. Now, let's do this. Forward. So get that blood circulating. Backwards now. Okay, put your arms to your side. Then to the left. The right. Whatever you want to do. Left. Right. Back. Forward. Okay, put your arms above. Take a deep breath. Go take a deep breath in. Go up on your toes. Then let it out and go down. Again now. Deep breath in. Let it out. 
did that. Okay, one thing I might remind you too, Otis Benson wrote a book entitled The Relaxation Response. I do this myself all the time. Sit back in your chair again for a minute. <laughs> I want you to concentrate on just being totally relaxed. I like to put my head back in my chair, get my legs out straight, arms to my side, just lean back and just close your eyes. Now think of a mantra, what he said, I use, the Lord is my Savior, something of that type, uh, shalom. And you think, take a deep breath in, repeat your focus word, deep breath in again, repeat your focus word. Be sure every muscle is relaxed from your hands, your heads, down to your toes. One more time now. Deep breath in. Let it out. And repeat your focus word. That's called a relaxation response. So it's probably a combination of exercise, relaxation, sweep. These are my rules for preventing Alzheimer's. Number one, exercise your mind daily. Number two, get 30 minutes of exercise most days per week, either collective or sustained. Number three is to socialize. Number four, get seven hours of sleep per night. Five, six, and seven, I, I encourage this. I think five should be, your vitamin D should be above 40. The Scandinavian studies showed if your vitamin D level was above 50, a dramatically reduced incidence of Alzheimer's dementia that was published a couple of years ago. I like to have vitamin D is above 40, probably above 50. We want your omega-3, which is brain food. want that above 8%. And I'm a strong believer your vitamin B12 should be above 500. And that's what I recommend to my patients. And by and large, my patients are enjoying good quality of life. My oldest patient now is 98 years of age. <laughs> and he owes 16 world records for running, all after 90 years of age. Well, those are, the, those are awesome tips, Dr. Cooper. Thank you so much. And we're going to open it up for questions now, if anyone wants to ask either of these two doctors uh, some questions. Thank you so much for that interactive uh, <laughs> part of this. Go ahead. Hello. Um, well, thank you for this excellent panel. My name is Greg Hanch, and I work as public policy director for the Texas affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI Texas. Uh, Dean Johnston, on Thursday, the Texas Tribune reported on a proposal to create an MD Anderson of the brain on the site of Austin State Hospital, which is a large, historically significant uh, public psychiatric hospital just a few miles north of where we are now. The proposal includes working with Dell Medical School to bring treatment for patients, training, and research. What more specifically do you envision as the role of Dell Medical School at Austin State Hospital and what do you think the benefit to patients will be? Yeah, so um, we didn't really talk about mental health. Mental health is absolutely critical to overall health. Uh, depression is incredibly common. Um, suicide has actually gone up dramatically in terms of the cause of death. It's a major one in, in Austin, across Texas. Um, but in, depression also impacts health in all other ways, including cardiovascular disease and including Alzheimer's disease. Um, so it, it, it has a major impact. Schizophrenia, um, you know, if you look at most of the homeless in the street, it's mental illness that's the, that's the common denominator for, for most of them. Being on the streets and mentally ill, um, at least in San Francisco, there was a 10% annual mortality rate. 10% annual mortality rate. Um, so that's another segment if you look at, at disparities that needs to be addressed. So this notion of the, the ash and um, so Austin State Hospital, wonderful old, old, old state hospital system, gigantic campus, um, was sprawling, used to be gigantic, had over 6,000 people there, now has many fewer, um, but can't meet the, the needs for inpatient care for our region. Um, and so um, mental health issues get criminalized, so the prisons become a place where, where we send people who are psychotic, for example. Um, so that's not going to work. Um, you know, that is the way we, we provide care today. We just we sort of patch them up and we throw them back out on the street as well. We don't have systems of care to, to care for the mentally ill. It's not just the poor. If you were middle class, and we have mental health issues in my family, for sure, getting access to mental health uh, practitioners is extremely difficult. And insurance, most of them will not take insurance, so it's mostly out of pocket. So for middle class folks, there is no access to appropriate mental health care. 
This is the same kind of care that we, that we should be, that we demand for with people with diabetes, and yet for depression, which is just as important and has a, such a dramatic impact, we don't even cover it on the insurance side, and we ignore it on the uninsured side. So the whole system needs to get, get reworked. So we're seeing the Austin State Hospital replacement, that need, and it's an urgent need, as being a, an opening of the door to evaluate how we provide um, care for um, mental health, also for neurological diseases like Alzheimer's and um, stroke and Parkinson's disease and many others, to take them on together. They're all a spectrum, and by isolating psychiatric illness, we've, we've created all kinds of stigma attached to it that's completely inappropriate. It is, those are diseases just like stroke and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and they need to be considered as a whole. So we see this as an opening to rethink how a community can take on that, those constellation of illnesses. I'm not sure I like the MD Anderson part. I mean, I, MD Anderson's fabulous. We do want thought leadership here in the systems of care. We want research here, but, but MD Anderson's not as, as good at caring for people across the socioeconomic spectrum as we need to be. Also, MD Anderson's very much focused on tertiary care, um, it, you know, the expensive end-of-life stuff. We want to pull that stuff out of the hospital and think about the entire system. So for me, that's, not, that's right in terms of scope, ambition, but not right in terms of the vision of what we're attempting to do there. Mm -hmm. Thanks for One that. comment on stress. Let me, that, okay. let me just make this one comment. People are physically fit or less depressed. Mm -hmm. We know that. A study recently released showed that when people are under stress, there is a hormone that goes to the brain and causes depression. Stress and depression go hand in hand. But they also in this study showed, the Scandinavian countries showed, that when you exercise, there's an enzyme produced by the muscle that blocks that hormone from going to the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So there's not just a psychological reason, there's a biochemical reason that exercise reduces depression. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Question over here. Good. Um, first, I want to say, Dr. Cooper, uh, when I was in high school, I had a little test anxiety, and I read that relaxation response book. Yeah. And it's probably why I have my PhD now. <laughs> I, I, I learned how to relax when I needed right, to. Right. So that, that was fun to revisit that. Uh, but my question is, is for Clay. And uh, it's, it's one that, you know, population health is different in some ways than, than medical practice, so mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe doing the, the screening treatments you're talking about or recommendations for uh, uh, stress tests, which I had in mine recently. So I'm okay. But so how are you training the students when they're, they're training for a career to meet people in a clinic to solve a particular right now problem uh, versus the population health side. So what are the physicians going to do because they're, they're mostly in the clinic? Uh, is that, does that pertain to the, well, I'll let you answer. Yeah, yeah, no, so, so d traditional training is all in the clinic. In fact, it's not even in the clinic, it's in the hospital. We train our medical students in the hospital even though the most of them will do work in outpatient clinics, not in the hospital and their training in outpatient clinics is less. So for us, they still need to understand what care is like in the hospital. They need to be good traditional doctors as well. They need to understand how, how care is delivered in clinics. For us, we put them more in the community clinics as opposed to in academic clinics. Um, so they're out in the uh, federally qualified health centers in our, in our community. Um, but then we absolutely think they need to be um, you know, that not every med school needs to have this as its charge, but for us, we think there's a, we need more physician leadership in population health, what used to be called public health, and put off on other professionals, that without the physicians actually taking a leadership role in redefining the field, we're not going to get those dollars that are currently in the healthcare system out to prevention, the same issues that we were talking about previously. So we do that by, I mean, the best example is that year. I mean, no other med school has that year. You know, in that year, population health is one of the key areas that the students will be working in, and they'll be working on real projects in the community. I'm sure some with you, Steve. So, um, you know, that'll, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It'll take us a while to get that right. Again, no school's tried to do this before, but um, it's really one of the unique uh, characteristics about our school. Great. Let's take one final question. Hi. Um I do research in telemedicine and telehealth, and I want to ask you, where do you see that integrating into Texas in particular in the next, I mean, in the future? 
Well, I, th I think it's interesting. I don't think it'll just be Texas. I, you know, it, it's a national trend. Texas is actually a little slower in the trend. On the one hand, we have some of the companies that are at the forefront. On the other hand, we have a medical board that's been resistant to some expressions of telemedicine, some versions of it here. Um, and so how that plays out will be really interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, just giving you a story idea. Yeah, yeah, um, we've been the, covering uh, that, yeah. Yeah, I know, you, actually you guys have been covering that well. So re regardless of that though, I think um, if you just take the perspective of a, not the healthcare provider, but us as people, the, the reality is, is, is there another industry that, that denies email as a useful mechanism to communicate. Is there another industry? And in fact, the healthcare industry doesn't generally allow emails between a practitioner and a patient. Um, it's hard, most practitioners won't do it unless they have a concierge practice or something else. It's a function of fee-for-service medicine. They don't get paid for it, they get paid for an office visit and so they don't do it. Um, a lot of things could be, care, could be done and health could be improved through email. Because, you know, for example, I'm having this, I'm having this funny uh, uh, tingling sensation in my fingers. Is it the medicine that I'm on? No, it's not. You know, just keep taking your med. That's an easy email interaction, right? But if you don't have that, then, and you have to wait, you know, three months to your next visit, then you're going to stop taking that medication, and then you didn't get the impact of the med. And in fact, you know, only less than 50% of people are taking their med as directed three months after it was prescribed. So that happened, that kind of thing happens all the time. So email is just one expression. Then, of course, could, if you could avoid driving in, paying for parking, waiting an average of 40 minutes for an office visit, mm -hmm. and do that with your phone, that would be awesome, right? So right now, the, the, I'm, I'm sure this will be ubiquitous in the future that we'll have systems where we use technologies a variety of ways um, that what we think of as telemedicine today with this sort of video encounter will be one vehicle, but one of many, many. Um, you know, some of the feedback of the sorts of programs that you create, if you have ongoing feedback too with a, where your app tells you, you know, pro provides your prescription over time of what you should be doing, that's very useful data and allows for much more rapid personalization and adaptation of a care plan than our current processes do. So I think it's going to be all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, those are all great questions. Thank you very much. And I now need to tell you that the Texas Tribune has arranged for a sampling of Austin's premier food truck vendors to serve lunch under the UT Tower on the university's main mall. Programming will resume at 1.45 p.m. I guess it's up to you whether you make healthy choices at those uh, <laughs> food trucks. Thank you all for coming.